Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On this podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. My guest today is the very awesome Izzy Suddy. She is a comedian, actress, and writer who played the character Dobby in the British TV comedy Peep Show, of which I have watched all 54 episodes. Izzy has written for The Guardian, The Observer, and Glamour, and is a regular writer and performer on BBC Radio 4. Her book, The Actual One, How I Tried and Failed to Avoid Adulthood Forever, will be released on January 31st in the United States, but thousands of British people will already have read and enjoyed it three days earlier. Welcome to Think Again, Izzy. Thank you. I didn't even know how many episodes of Peep Show there were, so... I'll I'll admit that I didn't either. I'm not that much of a nerd. I went to, like... (laughs) IMDb and looked it up and <laughs> I actually did the math so actually maybe that makes me more of a nerd I'm not really yeah sure. yeah, yeah <laughs> I guess so um, <laughs> but um, so your book uh, the actual one starts out when Amy and Gav who are your two best friends at the time um, are gonna have a baby and this completely freaks you out um, why I think I felt like I was locked into this paradise where we were all kind of treading water me and my close friends and um I'd been with a guy and we'd just broken up and um I thought I'd have everyone around me for as long as I needed to it was actually quite a selfish thing in a way looking back but I just assumed that everyone was on the same page without asking them because I think sometimes when you go out and you have a lot of fun with people like we did like we were always laughing and we were always kind of making up games and stuff like that you there's this kind of there was an unsaid thing in my head that was like great this this is how it's going to be for a long time and then the baby sort of represented to me um them being pulled away from me and I decided to write quite honestly about it because I wanted to write stand-up about it um, quite soon afterwards. And I wrote a song also called Don't Show Me Any Photos of Your Kids um, about, you know, when people kind of are like, hey, one more one more photo. It's like the eighth photo and you're like, oh, yeah, they've still got blonde hair. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and now I've got a, a two-year-old, so I have to stop myself from showing people. I can see their eyes glaze over when they don't have kids sometimes in the same way that mine used to. But... 
that seemed like a good moment to start the book because I kind of felt like I was still a child and that they were becoming parents and grown-ups and it, I felt like yeah I felt very kind of um worried about my future which sounds a bit crazy now but it was they were very real feelings I mean it seems like at least the way you tell it in the book and it seems like you had an especially fun young adulthood yeah yeah and I think I've always been those people who hates going to bed like I and it now I, I hate going to bed I hate the kind of rigmarole of like brushing your teeth and washing your face and it's like oh it's the end of the day like we have to go to bed and it was even worse then like I just I happened to have fun like genuine fun a lot of the time but then yeah there were definitely other times where it should have just been a day where I was where I chilled out and watched a film or something and yet I always wanted it to be like let's have some absinthe while we watch the film or <laughs> let's go on the roof and eat our barbecue instead of just eating it in the kitchen so I think sometimes people were a bit like it doesn't always have to be so extreme but right. I've always been like that you know even since I was a kid like I I think I put it in the book like I jumped off a bridge it was just this and you broke your you water. actually broke your ankle doing that yes yeah broke my <laughs> ankle in quite a sort of weird way that took quite a long time to heal and um I wrote this poem I remember I always remember the lines from this poem that I wrote I wrote all this this angsty poetry when I was like 14 or 15 and one of the lines was who has desire for something higher than jumping for joy and smashing a light <laughs> so it was that feeling of always wanting to like burst through the ceiling rather than just like oh no, I've smashed a light, what am I going to do? It's like, who cares? Like, jump through the sky. You right. Know? Is fear of adulthood then fear of routine? Is it like fear, like it sounds like you were into not having things be predictable. You say you don't like to go to bed at a certain time. Is it a fear of like having your days ritualized and routinized, having to get up at a certain time? I mean, I, you know, I have a nine-year-old. I feel like when you become an adult, at least in my case, you you're you're less openly it's not that you're less open you're just less openly available at every time like that is to say you have to be a little more specific about like when you're doing what and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I mean like totally you know what I'm saying like I feel like in my 20s I was just it was more about having to be 100% chaotically yeah. available and present everywhere always you know and you've got time in your 20s haven't you you've got so much time yeah. it's like you go out and you can stay out for one hour or six hours it doesn't matter and it feels like perhaps conversations can go a lot deeper and go in directions you haven't expected because you you're not clock watching and you right I, I even find out now that if I go out and well, I don't go out that much now because she's just two but you know say she's she was maybe a bit ill the night before or something and I I've, I've gone out I've, my mind is half on like you know is she okay am I going to get a call to go back for my boyfriend, like, you know, should I be out? So I think right. it is really hard then to completely involve yourself in the moment. And and I hear myself say now, you know, like people without kids, my friends might say, oh, do you want to come over? And I sort of go, yeah, maybe it, um, I just need to see if I'm too tired because I've got to write in the morning and, you know, she might. And I sort of think, oh, my God, this is the kind of thing that I used to berate people for in my head. And perhaps I misinterpreted it when I was younger as being kind of something against me. Whereas actually it's people just kind of trying to stay alive with kids. You know, that's right, how right, I see right, it right, sometimes. Right. It's like, I've got to stay sane. You know, like sometimes you want to stay in and, and watch TV on your own because you're just so tired. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely that. I mean, it's exhausting raising a kid and, and sometimes you literally just need to like, you know, zombie out. But, but also for me, 
the responsibilities of adulthood actually made me more productive in terms of having, forcing me to look really intensely at like how many hours are there in a week? What do I actually want to do? When can I do it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you had to be, and that's something that's always given me great satisfaction actually to be able to kind of go, right, I'm going to do this for two hours and then like even today, you know, I, I had some errands to do when I ha- went home and I had 45 minutes to chop vegetables and everything <laughs> for the spaghetti bolognese. And I put that in the fridge and I came out again. And so it's like, I quite like that. I've always kind of liked to draw charts and timetables and kind of tick things off. So although I, I've had that thing and still have of, of kind of like, hey, let's have a party, you know, somehow that's always been housed in yeah, this is what happens now. Okay. It was almost like I had to have the structure on the outside and then I'm allowed to kind of, but I wasn't ever one of those people who could just go to a festival with like a toothbrush and an orange <laughs> and like try and trade the orange for a, a tent, you know? Yeah. Um, I always kind of had to go, okay, yeah, da-da-da-da, my mum knows where I am. Okay, let's go. In that sense, I, I like that fact of like having to plan stuff. Now I've got a baby and like, yeah, I say should be at the child mind as I had to do this writing. I think it makes you much more productive as a writer, like definitely, because there's nothing like a deadline, is there? And, you know, if you know you've got two hours, you just don't go online and I don't kind of stare at the paint on the wall for an hour. And So um, Izzy, I was wondering if I could ask you to read a passage in your in your book from the later part of the book. Um, it's the beginning of chapter 28. The little anecdote about skiing and your ski suits yeah with great pleasure and so this this chapter is called Izzy finds that you don't need to know more than one verse to the lonely goat herd from the sound of music I like to say I go skiing every year in reality it's more like every three I went for the first time when I was about 10 to Bulgaria with my family and adored it although my dad got bitten on the thigh by a local stray dog with rabies and had to be transported to hospital in what I recall as a wooden ambulance The ambulance men knew the dog by name and shook their heads smilingly when they arrived, as if the dog was their wayward mate, Kev, who'd been caught scrapping again. The only two things I took away from that holiday were a love of skiing and a memory of being in the back of the wooden ambulance, looking down through the gaps in the wooden slats at the road whizzing past below, while my dad sat there with his leg up, still in his ski suit. I say ski suit. My ever-thrifty mother decided our family would probably only ever go skiing once, and that it would be a waste of money to buy ski suits for us. So instead of trying to borrow them, she opted for the easy option of converting 70s duvets into ski suits. First, she applied waterproof spray, and when it had dried, she laid each duvet on the floor. Big brown and orange flowers, pink and orange diamonds, mustard and light blue stripes. We lay on top of them like Christmas angels with our arms at right angles to our bodies, and she drew round, made us shuffle along so that we were on a new bit of duvet, drew round us again and then sewed the two bits together with a zip down the front. The front and back of mine were made of matching fabric and the same went for my sister, but because of a mistake when she was cutting out his outline, the front of my dad's ski suit was made out of a different duvet from his back, which was the only thing that could be worse than having a ski suit made out of a duvet. When the four of us were skiing together, we looked like the Bay City Rollers on a break from tour, crashing over the crest of the hill. The book is full of these wonderful kinds of stories with incredible specificity like this. I mean, like the fact that you 
named your hamsters, I believe, yeah. after yeah. Uh, Doors songs when you were a kid, like Riders on the Storm and yeah. The Snake to the Lake or whatever. Um, and so I, I love this. And first of all, did this happen? Did your no, mother actually do this? Or did you make that um, up? Izzy? So a lot of things, especially stuff that my mum does, um, people question me about because it seems implausible that she would um, put <laughs> her children through something like that and her husband. Um, but... Um, that all happened and stuff like my mum being an inventor is true and there's a bit where I talk about her inventions isn't there she invented like a thing called the hanger softener which was to stop crease marks from appearing in clothes if you dried them on a coat hanger like it was always quite kind of convoluted reason for inventing and the lentil piano was the worst (laughs) which was like the beanbag stuffed with lentils with a piano keys marked on it in magic marker because she was a piano teacher so it was for people to practice their scales on if they didn't have a piano but it just made the sound of lentils being crunched down as your finger pressed down on it Um, it's as if in some ways she was like an unintentional absurdist performance artist like doing yeah i know what you mean like she was kind of a housewife stroke part-time nurse who who yeah it was a lot more creative perhaps than her life allowed at that time yeah Um, i mean now she doesn't work so she can do um, all the crazy stuff she wants, but well, like I spent a whole summer sewing poppers onto the hanger <laughs> softeners, and then you know, just like, what, what are we doing? Not getting any money for this? Um, so but yeah, no, it, it or, seems rather yeah. similar in some ways, though. I mean, analogous anyway to making comedy, making songs, all those kinds of things. I mean, she there there, there must be some overlap. I think there's always an attention to detail. I always think that's very important that you pay attention to detail. Like I'm starting to write my second book now. Like oh, I yeah. sort of started in the last couple of days and I don't know whether to read this book about writing and writing the first draft in 90 days and kind of following all the exercises or whether to just kind of go for it and hope that my experience of writing will serve me, even though I haven't written a novel before because this is going to be a novel. But ah. I just had a drink with my friend um, <laughs> and he said... Don't, oh my God, don't read that book. He's a writer as well. And he said, you've written other stuff. Like, don't think of it as a novel. Just think of it as a story. Right, and, right. and then when I started to think of it as a story, I was like, oh yeah, it's not like a novel. There's something about the word novel that makes you think you have to start smoking roll-ups and drinking black coffee and kind of not washing your hair. For and you, you immediately and you think of War and Peace or something too. So yeah, it's, already, exactly. it's got to be 2,000 pages long and yeah. all written and yeah. in advance somehow, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And actually, my literary agent said to me, please don't write it like a novelist. Just write it in your voice. And that was really good advice. I think I wanted it to be like, yeah, like Catcher in the Rye or something. It was like, I'm going to move people. I'm going to make them cry. I'm going to make them think. And it's like, no, just just write a story. That's like, exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that goes. And, and it'll be interesting because you, you know, like I said, your, your book, like it's very clear that you have a very specific memory for details and that you have a kind of love for these memories of your, your life. I mean, I can see why in some ways you were so sentimental about losing your young adulthood because you have such vivid and specific stories to tell about it. And so finding what those details are that you want to attached to made up characters and made up situations you know are you going to borrow them from your own life or not you know that'll be interesting so when i knew i was going to write a second book i had a conversation with the editor and i i thought they would want another autobiographical thing so 
I was thinking, I don't want to write about my 30s. There isn't enough jeopardy in it. And like, you know what it's like with a kid now. Like, I didn't want to write about changing nappies. And I didn't want to write about like new new mums that I'd met. And, and partly also because I couldn't tell the truth about them because I'm probably all going to read it. Whereas somehow writing the book about my 20s, it, it was quite a long time ago. And especially the guys in that, I've changed a few of their names. But like, right, I sort of right, don't right. care. It was such a long time ago. And also, I don't think that I say anything really bad about people, do I? I just kind of probe what happened and why and whatever. But with this, I just thought, nah, this isn't, it doesn't feel right to kind of go, and then what I did next, I had a baby. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think I could make it interesting enough. And I think I could make it quite funny, but I don't think I could justify writing a whole book I think, about what happened next. I think that goes back a little bit to, you know, like what we were saying before, which is that, you know, a lot of the... The more interesting stuff on, that happens in adulthood doesn't look that interesting from the outside. I mean, the younger stuff, like when, that's why when you're younger, you're like, oh, it would be so lame to be 40, you know, because sure. on the outside, it doesn't look like anything. But obviously, you're still in there. You're still doing things. You're still changing. Look, you're about to write a novel for the first time in your life. My God, you know. You're yeah. absolutely right. I think the first book hopefully appeals to a wide range of people because it people read it who are in their 20s or really 30s and are going through what what I was going through god I make it sound like I was going through a war like it was so hard <laughs> for me but um, <laughs> managed to survive um, or uh, people who are older like it as well like people who are in their 50s or even 60s are kind of like oh yeah it made me think of my 20s and so I think it's quite a different thing from going you know it's so hard when you're out of nappies and uh, that'll be funny to a few people, and but I just, yeah, I just don't, I think you're right. It feels like more of a closed shop, and I wouldn't w- yeah. have wanted to read that before I had a kid. And I don't know if I'd want to read it now I've got a kid. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know what it's like when you're out of nappies, you don't have to tell me in a book. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I, I but, but um, I thought I do want to use all the kind of good, juicy stuff from kind of pregnancy and birth and motherhood, and but in another way. So the idea that I had when I met with my editor about the second book was to do this was when I thought they would still want an autobiographical thing to do a kind of three-stranded book where one strand was about an older man looking for a relationship um which is something that I've written quite a lot about for my Radio 4 series it always seems to come back to people older than me the kind of lonely people basically who want love um, and then another strand was going to be about death because um, my dad died five years ago and I wanted to write about that and then the third strand was going to be like a woman in an abusive relationship which sounds like quite a departure for me from my normal stuff but I wrote a short story for a horror book um, oh, cool. called Dead Funny which was like yeah a compilation of different comedians short stories and um, that I ended up just being about a kind of an abusive relationship where she ends up murdering her boyfriend but it's all through her diary and I really loved writing it and it was like you know sometimes you get asked to do something writing wise and you think oh I couldn't write a horror thing that's just not my thing I write light-hearted things about love with perhaps a touch of darkness in them but I couldn't go anywhere near that level of what you'd need me to do and then I thought oh, I'm, I'm just going to try it and and it just kind of came tumbling out and I really loved it and I also think I made it quite funny like he's got a list of rules for her that she can't break and it starts quite kind of superficially and then you can see that he's having more and more control over her and but a lot of stuff is like yeah that's really interesting territory that space between horror and funny like yeah where horror where humor segues into gross and then and and terrifying and then maybe even comes back again yeah yeah absolutely something quite nice about it not having to be funny 
but yeah I wanted to kind of use kind of explore that again so that was going to be my idea there were three stories that somehow the characters interacted with each other and and then I sat down with her and she was like why don't you just write a novel it doesn't have to be about you and it was like being set free because then I was like oh my god brilliant so I can use anything from my life and I can use Mm. things that I couldn't write about as myself like annoying parents that I've met who (laughs) you know even if I wrote about them people wouldn't know who it was even if I changed their gender but if they're in the novel you know I can tell no that wasn't you yeah but one thing that I sometimes felt when I was writing the actual one was that I wanted to say more about situations Mm -hmm. and I just couldn't for fear of hurting people so it feels like quite a natural progression to to kind of take the shackles off but it's also quite daunting because when you're writing about yourself you're writing truthfully about things that have happened to you whereas when you're asked this is the thing I've got to get over the word novel because I'm writing a story you go oh my god it could be about anything it could be about (laughs) a crow who flies to through the ozone layer and then you go (laughs) oh no it Let's make it about a girl who's called Lizzie, who's um, a bit like right. me. Who, yeah. So I think it's going to take a lot of things from my life. The nice thing about a novel, I think, you know, the, the actual one is very funny and it's composed pr- predominantly of like tight anecdotes. And you do get deep here and there, but like for the most part, it's, it's funny. You know, it's a, a, it may be on serious subjects, but it's not like dwelling or meditating yeah. too much on anything. A novel you have a lot more potential room to stretch out. And so the question, what will be interesting to see, I think for you maybe as a writer, is how much do you decide to stretch out? And the nice thing is if you stretch out too much in the first draft and you you know, go deeper than you feel you want to and it's weighing down, you can always cut things. But, yeah. but it'll be an interesting forum, I yeah, think. Thank yeah, thank you. Fingers crossed. I'll burn the book. <laughs> I'll chuck yeah. it in the in the sea. I'll go to the sea just to chuck the book. <laughs> or, or like Kafka or somebody you can, uh, you know, or someone else I'm thinking of, I don't know. You could um, bind it up in twine with a note that it should be yeah. destroyed after your death, preferably dr- dramatically yeah. in some public <laughs> setting. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great yeah, yeah. idea. Um, yeah, okay, that. cool. Um, <laughs> shall we get on to the second part of the show where we watch the surprise clips and... Sure. Okay. So... Let's go to the clips and, you know, I have not seen these. They were picked for us by the producers here at Big Think who know the video archives really well. The first one uh, appears to be Paul Bloom, the psychologist, and he's talking about empathy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I tell people I've been writing a book against empathy, often they look at me suspiciously, because most of my friends are liberal, and say, wait, is this some sort of conservative book? Are you attacking liberals and progressives? And it's a natural question to ask, because a lot of people associate empathy with liberal and progressive politics, and they associate other traits with, uh, with conservatives. 
Um, the conservatives would say they associate reason with conservatives. Um, the liberals would say we associate selfishness and self-interest with conservatives. But one thing people often agree about is that, um, on both sides, is that the liberals are more empathic, for better or worse. And if so, then my attack on empathy is an attack on liberal politics, and that would certainly be interesting. But that's not the way I'm going to go. I think there's some experimental evidence that actually liberals are a little bit more empathic than conservatives. There's empathy tests that you could give, and it turns out liberals score a little bit higher than conservatives, with libertarians below everybody kind of on the floor here. And, um, but it's not a big difference. And it turns out when it comes to political debates, uh, typically the, the debate isn't over um, whether or not to empathize. It's over who to empathize with. Do you empathize with, um, with uh, black teenagers who are shot by cops? Or do you empathize with cops who have a difficult and dangerous job? Do you empathize with, with um, the, the parents of a toddler who got shot by a gun due to lax gun laws? Or do you empathize with somebody who is raped because she is not permitted has no right to own a gun to defend herself. Do you empathize with the woman or the fetus? Do you empathize with the, the beneficiary of affirmative action who otherwise wouldn't get into a college? Or with the white kid who was going to get in because his grades are great, but isn't going to get in because he's, he's white? And so on and so forth. For every, every sort of argument where, where liberals and conservatives face off against, each side points to somebody to empathize with and argues that way. And I think this is a horrible way to have political discussions. Any policy of any scope, from affirmative action to gun laws to abortion uh, laws, is going to have some winners and losers. There will inevitably be people who suffer uh, upon any application of law. And so pointing out, oh, let me tell you the story of somebody who suffered. Somebody who suffered because of Obamacare. Somebody who suffered because we're, we're getting rid of Obamacare is a stupid argument. It's an appeal to the passions. Well, what you really want to know is statistics. You want to know, well, how many people are suffering? How many people are better off this way? And how many people are worse off that way? At first, I didn't think I agreed with what he was saying because I was thinking, you can't turn empathy on and off. Well, I can only speak from my point of view. I don't feel like I can turn empathy on and off. I don't feel like I right. necessarily make a choice to empathise with someone. It's something that happens on an instinctive level. And I was thinking, surely then the choice is whether to act on the empathy right. or to kind of throttle it as it, <laughs> as it dares to rear its head. But then towards the end of the clip, I started to think that I agreed with him because... Um, Part of the reason that politics gets so nasty is because people, yeah, people say, well, what about, and give an example, and then you think, how can I argue with that? It's like the other side is completely the opposite. Right. Whereas what he says about statistics does make sense to me. I think the problem is that I sometimes, the spin that they put on the statistics is perhaps completely motivated by empathy as well. So it's almost like, you want to see the statistics before they can get their hands on them and make it seem like it kind of tallies with their argument. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're like me in this, but I, I'm a person where when people start arguing politics, when the when those kinds of people and I do think they are sort of kinds of people who 
are extremely certain and very like convinced of their positions and usually have seven or eight different statistics to back them up come to the table and start like arguing with me i just really want to go away not because i'm not smart but because i i immediately feel that the conversation is i don't want to do battle in terms of like oh here i've marshaled my facts yeah. so i'm i'm the same as you and i, I think especially if I'm out and you can feel it start to get tense when people disagree about something political or, or religious for that matter. You, I, I start to think this isn't like on a very basic level, I think this isn't fun. I don't find this fun. Some people I think do. I think they, they kind of like yeah, yeah. getting their teeth into an argument. I'm certainly in the same camp as you. Like I think, how can I get to the other room and just talk about like Fanta or something? Or, you know, I just want something light. I don't want this. Yeah. But I sometimes think that, that I miss out on on quite important stuff because of that. And perhaps that I shouldn't try and escape it so quickly. And like with Brexit and Trump, like Brexit is the first time that I really, really got on board with something political. I used to just kind of be like, I used to think of politics like I used to think I don't really understand a lot of it and I don't feel strongly enough to go and march somewhere. And um, often right. I can see a bit of both sides. I can't apply that to Trump, of course, but with conservatives and liberals in this country, I can see where both sides are coming from. Maybe that's me empathising with each side. Although on the whole, I'm definitely on the liberal side. I, I, I often feel quite apolitical about topics. Yeah. And I think it might be quite good for me to take part in a debate or something where I had to kind of really throw myself into one yeah. camp. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I also have attended. So I, I was recently on holiday with my family. Uh, again, I've become British and talking to you, I think we would say vacation, vacation in my country. Yeah. But uh, we're in Aruba and I'm sitting by a pool and there were a lot of British people in, in this particular sort of all-inclusive re resort. There's some adulthood for you. I went to an all-inclusive <laughs> resort uh, with my family. Um, and this young British guy, super nice kid, I'm talking to him for like an hour. And, and then at some point he's like, I would never go to London. And I'm like, oh, why is that? And he's like, well, because it's mostly another country. I mean, the people in London are just not, it's just not even England anymore. Uh -huh. And I was like, and this was after I had thought like, oh, what a lovely guy. Like, I'm having a great conversation, you know. So, so you know, he, he came out with this thing and I was just like, okay, wow, that's really interesting. And so face to face, I feel that way a as well. And I think that it's probably true that in political argumentation, the thing, if you are going to get into it, the thing to do is to marshal facts and to go up against other facts. It's yeah. just that... Uh, when I don't like it is that is the way that people use it as a sort of kind of masculinity contest sure. or, yeah. you know, look, have you read the Tawny report? Yeah, it can be used as a kind of weapon and as an emblem and people, I find it, I find it quite tedious when people are so closed that they can't even properly justify why they think what they think. Like, I'd be more interested to talk about religion, say, with someone who used to be very religious and then became agnostic than someone who was brought up in a very religious family and has never known anything else and hasn't ever doubted it because then you don't have that light and shade. And I guess right. I sort of feel the same with politics. Like I'm always on the liberal side, but I think it doesn't do any harm to see why the conservatives would say what they said, because if anything, it can just reinforce 
your view. Yeah. That thing of that guy not going to London, I think that's how a lot of the country feels after Brexit. And Brexit did some terrible things because it divided the country, really, and it divided Scotland away from England. And my dad was Scottish, so mm. I sort of think, God, you know, we're gonna are we going to lose Scotland? That's That's insane. And... I don't think that referendum ever should have happened. Like, you know, that's not an unusual thing to say. Like, oh my God. <laughs> but I, I don't think anyone really thinks it should have done in, in my group of friends. And because a lot of London voted to stay and a lot of outside London voted to leave, I think it sort of did create quite a rift that's going to take ages to... Was it before or after Brexit that you met the guy? I think it was after Brexit. So he had had to, I guess he had had to solidify a position in his mind that like we are from a different country from London, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that in America now they keep talking about how like, oh, America was always divided. The rural people, you know, are tired of being yeah, passed yeah. over and forgotten. The media doesn't talk about them. You know, they're, it's all New York and LA, et cetera. But I think it's true that probably just like with Brexit, a politician like Donald Trump inflaming populist sentiments and these divisions to his advantage also increases those divisions, also makes them real in a way that they might not quite have been before. Yeah, absolutely. Things can seem solidified in in a heartbeat if if someone that has got a microphone who's in a lot of power says that, that it's true. Yeah. If there's, it can be a whisper of something and then it can become the truth by the end of the day. And that's so scary. Yeah. But I think with what David was saying, what he said is really interesting because I think that sometimes empathy is necessary. Like if you're a politician, I think you have to have empathy in order to feel passionately about something. So I wonder what he'd say about politicians themselves having empathy because he perhaps seemed to be talking more about how we interpret politics. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, again, drawing on my sort of prior knowledge of his arguments here, like the main thing that he's saying is that empathy is an unreliable moral guide. He says that basically it can be used to, I mean, either intentionally or just randomly, it can manipulate you into yeah. taking action in one direction or another, regardless of political affiliation, you know? But I don't know if it's a choice to feel empathy. I think it happens on... Of course, yeah. I think it's quite a reflexive emotion. I think he'd agree with that. I think he'd agree with that. But I think he would also say that, as you said before, that the choice is about what you then do afterwards. So yeah, maybe if, if you apply I've... logic to it, you can tell that actually it was just an, an emotional reaction and that it isn't kind of backed up by fact or something like that. Right, right, right. Or like, I, you know, I th this is terrible what's happening to the Syrian refugees. I really have to get on an airplane right now and fly to, you know, the refugee camps in Germany and help them. Like, okay, or take a second and reflect and think like, is my personally going to the refugee camps in Germany the most effective way that I could actually help these people that I feel bad for you know like is that the thing I should do like yeah. if I do that you know like is that really going to do the most good you know? yeah 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 going back to the um thing about people arguing at dinner parties and stuff yeah, yeah. I always remember being at my ex-boyfriend's um whose family had like a little cottage in a small village in Somerset and these neighbors came round and said inferred that they weren't happy about immigration. Um, I can't quite remember how it happened, but we'd all had a drink and it was a, a town, it was a village where basically everyone was was white and they 
they made it clear that they weren't very happy about immigration. It was a long time ago. And I always remember my boyfriend at the time kind of becoming really enraged and right. having to make a choice about whether to tackle it with them. Because it, it's like you reach a crossroads. When that comes up in a social situation, you reach a crossroads where you can choose to pursue it and to have possibly a big argument with them. Or you can bite your tongue for the sake of your family who are there and kind of everyone who's having a drink. And so I always think that's quite interesting, that moment where you have to decide, am I going to change these people's minds? Right. Is it still worth doing? Possibly yes. Like, because what you believe politically is part of your identity. So maybe it's still important, even if you can't change their minds, because right. what you believe in politically kind of runs through you like a thread. So perhaps if you do argue with them, even though, even if you don't change their mind, it might make you take some kind of action in a few months because you were proud of yourself that you'd argued in in defense of the refugees so it's i always think it's quite a complicated thing like when when people clash because it's like yeah. why are you arguing you're not you're probably not going to change each other's minds so i'm always very interested in why yeah people continue yeah yeah no no that's really interesting i mean i also also would make that call in the moment like do i is this really worth going into but but more and more i feel like what I end up doing is asking those people questions, you know, and just trying to kind of, because if you start getting in an argument, first of all, nobody, I mean, maybe some people, but not, certainly not me, are at their best rhetorically or logically when they are arguing, right? I mean, your emotions are up, your lizard brain kicks in, and you're, you're, everything is an attack, you know? So whether or not you're gonna change their mind, you're probably gonna get more out of it in yeah. the end, I guess if you can talk to them as opposed to yelling at each other yeah. without which is a very hard thing to do when you feel passionate yeah i agree but but yeah I, right? I think you're right i think you, <laughs> you'd save yourself a lot of you know high blood pressure and you'd <laughs> you'd have more of a chance of perhaps making them think if it remained civil it almost needs someone to step in whenever there's a whiff of a political argument and kind of as, as the umpire, you know, it's like, it's okay, you've got five minutes to talk and then the other person yeah, has yeah. five minutes and then you can kind of grill each other in a... That, that would actually be, yeah. I, I, I hope that um, maybe you one day will make that, make that a comedy routine where there is like literally like a free floating, a free floating umpire who just appears at people's houses to like, when, when things get heated around the dinner table, like, yeah. hello, yes, I, I'm, you know, I've come to help yeah, you. Yeah, like a fairy god. Mother, like they appear out of yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I understand that. Oh, discussing discussing Brexit, are we? Like, yeah, yeah. But the, the umpire could definitely not have empathy. Uh, right, exactly. surely not, because then they'd start to get swayed. And the umpire would be good if it'd be someone like me who doesn't actually know loads and loads about politics. Would just be like, okay, listen, guys, just uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, if that appears in the novel then I'll, I'll credit you in the thank yous at the end. Oh, I mean, it's certainly not required, but I, I will definitely read, the, <laughs> I'll read the credits and be very, very, I will feel warmth in my heart if I see that. <laughs> Shall we see what the next surprise clip is? Sure, yeah, yeah. This is a comic, Maysoon Zaid. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. I'm a person who watches TV all the time. All the time. I love TV. And I really think that the media heavily influences how we as a society behave towards each other. And one of the things that I find to be lacking on television are positive images of diversity. Hollywood talks a lot about diversity, and I think that the definition is wrong. It's not about having, you know, one person of this color and one person of this gender and one person of this. It's about actually including those people and allowing them to tell their stories and creating images that mirror those in the real world. And one of the places that I feel this is the most necessary is with people with disabilities. People with disabilities are the largest minority in the world. We cross all races, classes, religion, gender. We're the minority group that you can join when you don't want to at any time in your life. And we are the most underrepresented on media and television. And when you do see disability on television, we're reduced to two storylines, either heal me or you can't love me because I'm disabled. We're never full-fledged characters that fall in love, maybe have kids, maybe get in a cat fight. You know, we're reduced to these snowflake angel eternal children. And the fact that people with disabilities grow up and that we're functioning members of society and that we're not just here to bleed the system is not something that I see on TV. In addition to that, roles of people with disability are often played by actors who do not have those disabilities. And those actors often take home awards. Meanwhile, the disabled community is watching this, and to us it looks like a caricature, because we don't believe that visible disability is something that you can act. We feel like it's something more like race, where yes, there's a visible component, but there's also an internalization that an actor that's just mimicking twitches is not capturing. So we're shut out from playing the wacky best friend when there's no reason that we should be, but we're also shut out from playing the roles of actual people with disabilities. I believe that the reason I encountered so much hate after my first big TV appearance on Countdown with Keith Oberman was because people are not used to seeing disability on TV. So they thought it was okay to guess what I had. I was there to talk about politics. We did not address my disability. And when I went home and Googled myself like any egomaniacal actress with a dream does, I saw people saying, it's Botox gone wrong, it's bad surgery, she's drunk, she's drugged, she's Muslim, maybe her husband beat her. And my favorite one, poor Gumby Mouth terrorist, we should probably pray for her. I don't know how you could, I don't know how you could disagree with anything <laughs> she says. It makes me feel embarrassed on behalf of the whole of the TV industry and, you know, the whole of humankind you just think yeah she's absolutely right like I was thinking when she started off about my friend who's an actor who's black and he is really successful especially in theatre but he said to me once like I never go up for the main guy very much like yeah I think he would now actually because he's but it's taken him years to to work really hard and he said I just never go in or hardly ever go in just for the guy that the show's about 
it's so often a white guy. Yeah, like in film, I mean, in film and TV generally, I, I'm sure it's the same in England. Casting in Hollywood, at least, is it seems to be very comfortable with stereotyping people. I'm sure you're often getting cost, cast or offered like the quirky, fun friend or whatever. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> but then seeing something like that makes me think well, I'm really privileged to go in and, and get offered even that. Like, yeah, yeah. it makes me just feel so sad and embarrassed but on behalf of casting people that they just wouldn't... That, as she said, it's twofold. It's not even just that she gets asked to play characters who are disabled. They have actors without disabilities playing those characters. It's really hard. Dan, well, Daniel Day-Lewis, for example, who did, I guess, a, I didn't see it, but an amazing job in my left foot is a right, physically yeah, whole actor who yeah no but that's right that's again and again and then Eddie Redmayne played um Stephen Hawking in the film about him and I thought he right. did that beautifully so it's not to take away from I'm sure Daniel Day-Lewis was amazing and I'm also sure that it that they studied the subject matter and that they got to know people with that disability and that they they went on a big personal journey and it's not to take anything away from them but right. at the same time you do think when you listen to her you think how can it be possible that they, like, they'd never cast a white actor and ask them to change the colour of their skin for the part? Or it would, well, I haven't heard of that happening, you know? Or So why should it be that they're, it's okay to, so as she says, consistently right, 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 right. do that? It's not even like they go, okay, it's Eddie Redmayne, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, like, we have to have a really, really big Hollywood name. Yeah. You know, this is an exception. It seems to be that, as a matter of course, they tend to cast actors without disabilities to play people. I was thinking about Tyrion in Game of Thrones, Peter... Dinklage. Yeah, Dinklage. Dinklage like, yeah. Um, so we were saying the other day, who's your favourite character in Game of Thrones? Who do you fancy most out of Game of Thrones? We were all like, Peter Dinklage is so hot. And we didn't say anything about the fact that he is short. I don't know what, what the term is, because I think it's changed since I was younger, but I didn't even think about it. He's just so hot <laughs> because he's he just is beautiful looking, but also he's an incredible actor. Right? Are you guys you know, are you guys okay over there with his British accent? Because it's not so good. Oh, I don't think of him as having a British accent. I just think of him as having like he's, Tyrion's. He's accent. trying to do one. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, yeah I yeah. think there's a lot of crazy accents <laughs> on Game of Thrones that seem to be like also Littlefinger's accent is kind of a really oh, like, yeah. kaleidoscopic yeah. mix of Irish and American. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the thing that I like about Game of Thrones is there are so many different accents in there. And also the guy who plays, um, oh my God, Jamie Lannister. Oh, yeah. When I first heard him, I was like, his accent's so weird. And then by the second episode, I was like, oh yeah, that's just his voice. And then I found out that English isn't his first language anyway. I think he might be Scandinavian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and then I felt really bad. because I was like, hey, this guy's got a really weird accent. And it's like, no. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, yeah. not only, not only, you know, is it that disabled character, uh, characters with disabilities are played by characters without, uh, actors without disabilities. The other point she's making, which I think is also horrifying, is that we don't even realize how rare and therefore how shocking it would be to have a lead actor in anything who has some no. kind of disability like cerebral palsy or whatever, you know, know. and not have that be a part of the character and not have that. No, be, I totally yeah, agree about you know. that. Like, I think it's I mean, all you can hope is that over time things will change. And there's a theater group here over here called Chicken Shed, which is made up of. 
um, I think children and young adults, I'm not sure what the upper age is, with different disabilities and there are um there are people with down syndrome and other disabilities in it and they produce really really brilliant stuff and um i suppose what you hope is that over time people it's casting directors and producers more than anything i think because a writer if, if we're thinking about this a writer shouldn't have to specify that right. the person might be in a wheelchair or the person might have cerebral palsy or you know no casting directors they're what they're doing is mitigating risk you know they've got money uh riding on projects right and they've got studios expecting the project to earn money and so they're mitigating risk they're like okay we're going to make the more or less safe choice or if we're making a bold choice we're making it within a certain set of relatively safe bold parameters whatever so that if we're going to lose money on this it's not going to be too much or you know whatever yeah and and so they have to have a gun to their head you know like hollywood with black lives or, or i'm sorry oscars so white you know last year there was this oscars so white hashtag yeah i remember and it yeah. the academy had to come out and be like okay we're totally revamping our academy and you know have a more evenly culturally and racially distributed academy and you know whatever because they had the gun of twitter to yeah. their head and they looked bad yeah you know? and maybe that's how that just should happen like you know then some people will go oh this shouldn't you know it shouldn't be then about casting a certain amount of this person a certain amount of that person maybe that is what needs to happen first and then as soon as people wake up and go oh yeah <laughs> you know then then it can just happen as a matter of course right. like with over here with panel shows in some ways this isn't similar and i guess in some ways it is like over here with panel shows you know mock the week and things like never mind the buzzcocks where you just get a group of comics kind of on a panel and they're quite cheap to make really in a host and they'll just maybe discuss the news or or whatever or stuff that's been on twitter often there aren't women on those and there's been a big hoo-ha about this in the last few years and then the bbc made a statement where they said for every panel show that we produce there's going to be at least one woman on the panel and then as female comics we got asked a lot how we felt about that and I was just like well I mean I guess that if that has to happen then that has to happen and then people will see that there are loads and loads of funny women coming through and then they'll just put them on the panels anyway yeah like yeah for a couple of years against those yeah. rules coming into place in order to make there not be rules in the future if that makes sense yeah totally like I think any progress is good even if it seems a bit prescriptive and that's right kind of yeah I, I just think it's a pity that that has to come about in the first place yeah, um, but it, the reason it does, you know, you see why when when they do that, you see why why it does have to happen because immediately you'll get two kinds of reactions from the people who are uncomfortable with it. One is reaction against the prescriptiveness of it, like oh now everyone has to be so politically correct, blah mm. blah blah. But two is is just a kind of knee jerk reaction of like oh, this person doesn't belong at this party kind of thing, or like, yeah. why Why is my daughter bringing this guy home now, you know? And so for a couple of years, you have to kind of go through that, I guess. And then anyone who acts like that seems like a dinosaur. Well, exactly, because then that becomes the norm. And then it's like, oh, wow, you still have a problem with that? Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope more like, you know, stand-up comedy is nice because anybody can get up there, right? You know, if more people, I want to say like her, which is already a stupid thing to say, but more more people with 
various disabilities were to get up and become really funny comics. Comedy is very democratic in that way. Like, if you're funny, like, even if you seem different or strange or whatever, like, you're funny. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, it, it, absolutely, there's a blind comic in the UK called Chris McCausland who's just a really, really brilliant comic. And I think he... I haven't gigged with him for a few years, but I think he used to kind of talk about that, that fact that he was blind at the very top of his set just to kind of almost get it out of the way. And then like, then the audience was like, you're really funny. And then they'll just watch him and not be thinking about the fact that he's blind. Right. I think if you are funny, there's absolutely no doubt that that you might have to address it at the top, but maybe not further on in your career. Like with any comic, when I started out, I'd often talk about how I looked. It's such a sort of way in. Yeah. Um, it's something to say at the beginning, but if you're funny for sure like stand-up's the best career there is in a way if yeah and even if you're only a bit funny it's still pretty good because if you're disciplined um then it's so freeing just to be able to get up and go look this is what i think about a thing and you know yeah i have a belief yeah. that like that should be required curriculum and i don't know maybe not middle school because the kids would all commit suicide but like you know <laughs> high, high school or something yeah you know, i wouldn't to... if you were 15 yeah yeah, yeah 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 um but maybe this will high make me get him this will make <laughs> her love me uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um shall we shall we see what the third and final video in our roster for today is sure okay so this one is uh, philosopher Slavoj Žižek, who is Slovenian. We're watching from 2.36 until the end. Love. Love in the good old-fashioned change, which is today more and more rare. Love as an encounter. This is why in English and also in some other languages, not all, like French, you use the term fall. We fall in love. This is the eventual dimension. In what sense? Let's say you live a happy life. You are lucky, you have a job, you meet regularly with friends, uh, you are not in love, but you just make one night stands, maybe here and there, you meet every evening with friends, you drink, you go to blah, blah. Then all of a sudden, in a totally contingent way, let's say you stumble on the street, somebody helps you to stand up, it's a young girl or boy, blah, blah. And of course, it's the love of your life. A totally contingent encounter, but the result can be that your whole life changes. Nothing is the same, as they say. You even spontaneously perceive your entire past life as leading towards this unique moment. You know, the illusion of love is, oh my God, I was waiting all my life for this, something like this would have been the love event. And I think it's getting more and more rare today. Many intelligent cultural critics noticed how we are almost returning to pre-romantic, pre-modern times when marriage or love connections were a matter of uh, uh, relatives, counselors, and so on, your uncle, your aunt, they selected whom you will marry, and so on. Today, it's similar, only instead of all those old wise uncles, and so on, it's dating agencies, marriage agencies, and so on, and so on. What we, what they offer us is precisely love without the fall, without falling in love, without this 
totally unpredictable traumatic encounter. And that's what I find uh, very sad. I think that today we are simply so more and more fun. afraid of these eventual encounters. You encounter something which is totally contingent, but the result of it, if you accept it as an event, is that your entire life changes. It's a different story. Uh, this is why I think that this avoiding falling in love is the same phenomenon as a standard joke that I use in my, all my, uh, almost all my books. You know how we want to date the thing without the bad aspect of it, without the price we have to pay for it. We want, I don't know, uh, uh, we want uh, uh, sugar without calories, so we have sweeteners. We want beer without alcohol. We want, uh, and so on and so on. And I claim it's the same thing in sexuality. We want brief, safe sex, sexual encounters without the fall, without this fatal attachment. And I think this is the most sad thing here that even what is slowly emerging as maybe the predominant ideology today, what I ironically refer to as Western Buddhism. Life is just a play of appearances, don't take it too seriously, maintain a proper distance, don't get too attached to worldly objects. It fits perfectly this superficial consumerist attitude. So again, events are rare. An event is a traumatic encounter which to put it in more learned philosophical terms, retroactively creates its own causes. So that was fun. Um, so yeah, now we're into now we're into love, and he, you know, which you you definitely write a lot about in your book. He seems to be advocating, and which kind of surprised me. Like he's a philosopher, and philosophers are typically. I mean, if I can make this very broad generalization, very careful. He seems to be advocating for the unpredictable, intense, old-fashioned, in a sense, falling in yeah. love over a more modern, I guess, computer-driven, careful thing. Yeah, yeah. he's almost advocating the sort of violence of falling in love in a way, isn't he? And the, the raw nature of it. Which seems um, weird. Yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say it seems weird? It seems weird because only because, I mean, what he's calling contingent encounters, and I'm not sure he knows, well, I know what he means by the word contingent, but it, I, I feel like he's using it as I would use random, that, you know, which seems the opposite of what I think of as contingent. But, but he's saying that, like, you know, these you chance encounters in the street, you, someone, you drop your purse and someone picks it up or whatever, mm -hmm. and it changes your whole life, and that that is a good thing, but it seems to me that that that's a very sort of dangerously seductive thing. I mean, the fact that our mind wants to completely rewrite our past around, yeah. around a chance encounter and that we're willing to then completely radically change our whole life having no idea who this other person is. I don't know, is that good? <laughs> exactly. I mean, and also you get those people who love the thrill of the chase. Like I've got a friend who falls in love really easily for like three or four months <laughs> and would fall in love with a girl who kind of spilt her apples and he went and helped her. And then, you know, he dropped his books at the same time and she helped him with his books, you know. Um, yeah. Like would fall in love with her 
immerse himself in that initial bit that's just crazy and brilliant and heart wrenching and the roller coaster and then kind of leaves when it starts to get a bit more like hey we had an argument about what to watch at the cinema or something you know I guess so I guess by likening falling in love to that kind of thing he's saying that it's necessary to experience pain in order to be truly in love that that seems to me what he's saying right there's much less risk involved in effectively selecting someone online right but having known you know having known a lot of friends who met people online and some people who've ended up with those people I don't think that you eliminate pain and risk by meeting someone online I think perhaps the first bit seems more clinical but when you meet I think you're going through the same emotional journey that you would if you just got talking to someone in a nightclub I just think that the premise is slightly more artificial I just think it doesn't make for such a nice story like if you say right 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 yeah I was running across the road chasing after a cat and the cat died and then the driver got out of the car and like I fell into his arms sobbing and then now we're married that's an amazing brilliant story um whereas if you say oh yeah you know I went on a date with three guys they all had blonde hair and and had done economics and then I picked the tallest one it's like okay (laughs) you know uh yeah yeah no that's interesting so I mean like because I felt like for a second I felt like he was you know, what he was critiquing was more kind of like hookup culture, more, you know, people wanting to casually date and never commit to anything. But as far as actually meeting people through an online dating service, you think you know what you're looking for, or maybe, you know, you're narrowing it down to a set of characteristics, which are reducing the available pool of people on whatever service that is. But still, in the end, like these things that we think we want in a mate and these characteristics by which we define ourselves, mm. you know, there may be a major disconnect there. You know, yeah. we may think we're, we have control on those apps or whatever, but, but, but that we have much less than we think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think it is a really interesting thing. A, how you, not only how you perceive yourself, but how you want to paint yourself. And there's probably differences between those two things even. Yeah. And differences between those two and how you really are. And then what you look for, yeah, absolutely. I think that's why those websites where your friend writes your profile for you. And actually in the book, when my mum writes my profile for me, you know, it's like, actually, it can be quite interesting when someone else writes your profile for you, because it can be quite shocking, actually. And um, like stuff like Tinder. And so because I'm not that good at technology, and I didn't really do internet dating for very long and not very successfully stuff like tinder is i've never done it you know um and that might even be out of fashion by the time this podcast is on because everything seems to spring up (laughs) Um, like when i went on my friend's tinder the other day and just saw how easy it was to swipe photos and to kind of i was like oh my god like i remember grinder no gaydar gaydar (laughs) my best friend one of my best friends who's gay used to go on gaydar um when i lived with him and um this was years and years ago when the internet we had just one computer that we all shared and i didn't even understand that you could have one more than one internet window open at a time like that's how long ago it was <laughs> he used to go on gaydar and there was a guy around the corner who didn't even know his surname and he used to go on gaydar and find out if this guy was online and he used to i always remember he used to put a pie in the oven from the freezer and it used to take 45 minutes to cook the pie. And he used to put the pie in the oven and then say, I'll be back in 40 minutes and go around the corner and then come back. Wow. And um, that was kind of how 
I guess, anonymous that was. But then when he used to talk about it, he used to just say, this is what I want and it's great. And I think that at that point in his life, he didn't want a relationship. Yeah, if you're just looking for, yeah, yeah random sex, you know, I suppose. And I think that, know, I, yeah. I, I suppose that works. Yeah, if you're looking for... So it Go almost ahead, seems so. like in the video, he was talking about... To me, he was talking about that, that kind of thing where you put the frozen pie in the oven and go, I'm just going to go and have sex. It might not be amazing sex, but I don't want to be emotionally attached to the other person. And then I'm going to come back and eat the pie. Whereas I think that some people use the Internet to to really look for love right. and, and that they do take risks. And that sometimes I think the Internet has enabled some couples to meet that where each component of the couple possibly wouldn't have ever found anyone. Right. Like if for whatever reason you're housebound or, yeah, if you're in a marriage which isn't working out at all and you've got no escape and that person allows you to escape. And, you know, there are so many different reasons why people might find it a lot easier to go online and find some... That's right. ...finding yeah. meaningful relationship. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, I, I want to go back to one thing yeah. that you said, uh, you know, about your... You talked about your friend who is really good at beginnings of relationships, you know, who, you know, does a good job with the falling in love and the romance and the whirlwind of all that, but then kind of is out the side door when things get serious. Yeah. And I was thinking about that and then the thing you said about Zizek's video about how real love requires a certain amount of pain. And so, you know, in the case of your friend, like, you know, the sort of adulthood aspect of, of a relationship, going back to the premise of your book, is that moment where you say, okay, like everything isn't cake and roses all the time and and let's stay here and get through this yeah, together. I know I, I know what you mean. But actually I think that what he's addicted to is the extreme nature of the first bit. So I think he's addicted to the pain and the joy. And then what he doesn't like is when it gets boring. Oh, so there is the pain. There's the pain of like, is she gonna call? Is, yeah, does I think she really so. like I, me? Blah, blah, absolutely. Blah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I think that um yeah, for him. He likes that kind of rush um, of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? This is like, this is a life and death situation. And then when it becomes like, okay, yeah, maybe we'll buy a, a microwave, maybe we won't, or that kind of thing. Or even, I think that the feelings are often reflected in those kinds of actions, but like even just like, oh, we're too tired to have sex tonight. Right. Or, oh yeah, I didn't have a great time tonight. It was okay. Like walking home and going, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm yeah, not yeah. looking at the moon and going, how can that moon still be the same moon that was there three months ago before I met this person? And just going, oh yeah, that's the moon. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess, you know, what I would, what I'm feeling is that that pain in the initial stages of a relationship, in a sense, it's, it's both pain and pleasure. It's pleasurable pain because yeah. because it's you know it's like being a goth when you're 16 and sort of feeling the pain of wandering around a graveyard. You know it feels deep and dramatic and awesome in that way. Yeah. And that real you know that that maybe the real I, the real pain. I don't know. That gets a bit silly. But the real pain maybe. But let's talk about the real pain. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the real, real pain, pain is, of lasting relationships, yeah, you know, is the, is, you know, is the, is the grown-up kind of like dealing with suffering of like, okay, fundamentally in this way, we don't understand each other. How are we going to talk anyway? You know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Like, and dealing know, with yeah, members yeah. of each other's families and yeah, yeah. Um, like having to compromise on stuff and perhaps settling into a routine where you're lonely some of the time, but you're still in a relationship 
relationship, like all that stuff that at the beginning seems like it is so far away or right. it doesn't, there's a reason, isn't there, that at the beginning of a relationship, it feels like you're on drugs and it, because that's what knits you together. So that hopefully right, 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 that right. underpins all the, all the kind of tedious stuff that comes later on. Yeah. But listen, if I, you know, if, if I was single and he said, would you rather fall in love by dropping something in, in the street and a guy coming to help you and, and you kind of going, oh, my God, or would you rather select someone online? Of course, it would be the former. That appeals to the side of me that goes, yeah, that, that kind of thing should Let me jump happen. off a bridge and break. Yeah, my, exactly. Yeah, the side of you that likes to jump off bridges and break your ankle. But I think there's quite, <laughs> there's quite a dangerous thing that we do, which is to to make stories out of a random thing. Yeah. Sometimes that can be quite destructive. Like you get the good side of it where you fall in love and you go, oh my God, if I hadn't left the house at that particular time because I received a phone call, I never would have met that guy. But then I think also you can do, you can do things like say, I don't know, like sometimes I'll get quite anxious about my health. That's like my thing. I think by the time you're kind of 30, to me, by the time you're 33, 34, everyone's got their little thing that they have. And for me, it's that I sometimes get a bit anxious about my health. So right. say I find a mole that I think might be a new mole. I might go, well, if I hadn't looked at my arm at this time because I was listening to the radio and just looking at my arm, I might not have found this mole. Therefore, that might mean that the mole is skin cancer. And it's like, no, and then I have to say to myself, <laughs> Izzy, this is something that you sometimes do. Right. It's fine. It, it isn't a new mole. If you really think it is, you can check it out again in three months and then it's okay. But I sometimes have to remind myself, you sometimes create stories around something that could potentially be bad um, in order to justify you worrying about them. I don't know if that makes any sense, right. but no, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And likewise, likewise, stories around things that can be good, like a relationship to say that like this happened and this happened and therefore this thing was meant to be or whatever. We're, our brains are just very good at weaving narratives out of everything to justify whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. To justify our actions, yeah. I think, because we're all scared that we're like not living by any real moral code and that just some people are better at convincing others that the stories are true. I guess that's why politicians, when they're good, are successful because they make it seem like their story is the true story. But really, they're just kind of bumbling around dropping apples in the street as well. That's right. That's right. They're just, they're, they're just better at not appearing to be doing so. Um, Izzy Suddy, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me about your book, The Actual One. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. I really did. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed the conversation. And if you are listening and liking what you hear, and if you don't listen every week uh, and haven't done this yet, I would really, really appreciate it if you could take just a minute and go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or any one of the other million places you might be listening and rate us or post even better, post a review especially good reviews, we do like those. But even when we get criticisms, I read them and I take them to heart if they're not just mean. So if you actually have something you think can be improved about our show, I am listening. We'll be back next week with another unpredictable conversation and I hope you can join us. Ready for some quick mental health facts? 
Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.